0: Tonight's talk is about the five spiritual faculties. The five spiritual faculties. A few years ago, when I was doing some personal practice in Burma and reporting to the teacher, Seda Upandita, for the check-in or the interview, as I was uh, going towards the teacher to do my bows and to begin my report. I hadn't even gotten to my position yet and uh, the teacher asked the question what is equanimity? What is equanimity? And so I answered very shortly about having it be balance, uh, a spacious calm balance. He didn't refute that but when I uh, finished my bows and I was ready to receive the instruction from him. Uh, after he heard my report. He said, equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. In the lead is mindfulness. Behind that lead is the first pair which is faith and wisdom. And behind that first pair of horses is the second pair which is nearest the chariot that it's pulling. And that pair is concentration and energy. So these are the five faculties. Mm. Faith and wisdom, concentration and energy, and in the lead is mindfulness. And Seda Upandita said, when faith and wisdom are in balance, and concentration and energy are in balance, then the lead horse, which is mindfulness, has little work, has little work. And the chariot is led powerfully and smoothly to the ultimate goal of freedom from suffering in the various ways that we do suffer as human beings, namely from greed, hatred, and delusion. So keeping this, uh, these in our understanding, and knowing how to keep them in balance is a really important part of our practice. Not just being mindful, but learning what makes mindful powerful. mindfulness powerful. Steve spoke about balance the other night in, in terms of the seven factors of enlightenment. The uh, energizing factors and the tranquilizing factors. And these five spiritual faculties are another way of looking at balance. And so since this retreat has to do with balance or equanimity, we wanted uh, this talk on the five spiritual faculties to be offered to you. So I'd like to talk about the two pairs, faith and wisdom, concentration and energy, since Steve spoke about mindfulness in full, more in full the other evening. How do they contribute to balance in our practice of meditation and in our lives? So, these are all active powers, uh, individually and, of course, in balance with each other. They become strong in and of themselves, And they become stronger when we kind of analyze them to see, are they in balance with their opposite pair? They tend to coordinate and corral supportive energies. These energies are inherent within us. The Buddha would often say, it's not something that I can give you. He would say that in different ways. But it's something that we develop within ourselves and then use that energy towards our own uh, liberation. The Buddha and our own teachers would often say, the teacher can only show you the path and we ourselves have to walk the path. The teachers can't do it for us. So all of these qualities, all of these faculties in and of themselves are essential to uh, the onward leadingness of our own uh, path, essential to our happiness and to our peace. So um, I'd like to speak about each of these, these even, this evening and uh, how each of these balance the other when they come in pairs. They each perform their own function and establish a balance with the other. They're constantly kind of seeing where there's an excess or seeing where there is a lack. And mindfulness helps to keep them in balance, but if we, with our uh, intelligence, can take a look ourselves, we can see where to back off, or we can see where to give support, to give more energy, or to understand more for example. So this is about each of them on their own, individually. It's important to understand how one can be the cause and condition for the next one to arise. Manindra would often say to me, um, when one of the wholesome factors of mind and heart are present, then the other ones are nearby. The other ones are nearby. One wholesome factor of mind, which all of these are, these faculties, wholesome factors of mind, they draw the others in. They're nearby. So the first one is faith. This is just um, kind of an overview of them all, and then I'll, I'll fill them out a little more. Faith provides the element of inspiration and aspiration to our practice. It has the function of steering the mind away from doubt when we have faith. It settles it in more confidence on the path of practice. It gives us clarity. It acts sometimes uh, as a compass because it, this faith kind of shows the way. It points the way to where we can best use our energy. Where if we took the next step. What would that be? What direction would it be in? It helps us to put that next step on a path that's worthy of our efforts, not something that someone else has decided for us, but where we can see for ourselves, this is worthy of where I'm putting my energy, my efforts, where I'm using my time to uh, practice Energy is the next one. Faith tends to be a condition for energy to rise, because when we have faith in something, we normally have the energy to go for it, to do what we need to do in order to keep going on the path, or whatever our aspiration is. It said that energy kindles the fire of sustained efforts. It kindles a fire of sustained efforts. It just helps us. Once energy is started, it gives more and more energy. We, it's just practical knowledge, understanding that whenever we feel, for example, a lot of sloth and torpor, if we can go out and just take a, a nice, brisk walk, kindle that fire of energy, it tends to bring more energy to our practice. Instead of making us tired, it said that of course energy is the antidote to laziness. This is one of the thousand defilements: laziness. Um, sometimes this is pointed out to us very uh, directly. Um, I remember a story that Joseph uh, told us, Joseph Goldstein when Deepama said, you, you must, uh, it, it would be good for you to practice for three days. And uh, Joseph thought, well, you know, that's fine, you know, just practice for three days. And what Deepama was saying is to sit for three days state, straight without getting up at all. And <laughs> whereupon Joseph thought that, you know, that was sort of out of the question. <laughs> and um, so Deepama said to Joseph, don't be lazy, you know, (laughs) so it can get as far out as that but I don't know about Steve but in some ways, different ways, Steve isn't lazy, believe me, he's got, he's Mr. Energy, that's the one factor of the seven factors that he's very, very strong at, very clear. And That's why he does the first and the last sitting, <laughs> and I <laughs> hold the middle of your day. Um, but Upandita has said to me, in one way or another, maybe not in the same ways as don't be lazy, but you can do it. You've got the energy. Look for yourself. Just put one foot in front of the other, one breath at a time, one step at a time. And so we see that we, we do have that. It, it, it doesn't take much to realize the energy that's there. Sometimes we get this idea that, um, say, our practice here in the West, we, we ask that we get up in the morning at a certain time, and our first sitting is at 6 o'clock, and in some retreats it's at 5.30. Um, some retreats it's later. When we go to Burma... You have to get up at 3 in the morning. And at first I thought, that's ridiculous. Get up at 3. You have to be in the hall at 3.30 in the morning to do your walking practice. And at 4 o'clock, you sit from 4 to 5. And 5.30 is breakfast. And I just thought, oh, I don't know how I could handle this. But my first time in Burma, it's just like everybody's doing it. you know. And people were already doing it when I got there the meditation center the monastery goes on month after month and so i started to do it and it was fine this it's a little you know you get a little groggy when you wake up in the morning i was telling a yogi friend today i would i would get up and i wouldn't even take off my nightgown i just put my clothes on over the nightgown <laughs> you know and just find my way to the hall and It would be like, but just walking, doing the walking practice, sit down, doing the sitting practice. And I found out how wonderful it is to sit before it gets light in the morning. It it turned out to be my most favorite sitting of the whole day. Beautiful, beautiful time of the day. So we find out that we have more energy than we really think we have. We're just kind of imprisoned in our habit patterns. Energy, it kindles that fire of sustained efforts and it supports our journey. Um, as Steve said the other night when he spoke about the seven factors, it's one of the most spoken of uh, discourses that the Buddha gave during his lifetime. You'll find more discourses or suttas, sutras on energy and, uh, than all of the other factors. it said. I haven't seen that directly, but I believe it. It's onward leading. Um, it keeps us onward moving on the path, of course, all the time in this, this present moment experience, but leading onward, not stuck in indolence. An important factor, energy. What energy does is it contributes to clear awareness. Because when the energy is there then the mind is brighter. It's not kind of in a a fog of sloth and torpor. The mind is brighter and it can be mindful more clearly. Mindfulness, Steve spoke about the other evening, he filled it out more But mindfulness is often likened to this clean, clear mirror that reflects what's going on without any lens of attachment or aversion, delusion. And it's said that the brightness, the energy of this factor, this uh, faculty of energy, contributes greatly to that. So it's really helpful to keep our energy up and in balance. Not too much, and not too little. Mindfulness is the antidote to mindlessness, of course, that makes perfect sense. It's also the antidote to carelessness, uh, when we don't know where we're stepping, where we don't know what we're going to say, what we're going to do. If we're mindful of what's going on within us and the circumstances around us, then we're more careful with what we do with our speech, with our actions, with the very next physical step we're taking, with what we do with our mental energy. Mindfulness is the balancer of all all of this. It says that mindfulness brings immediate balance. It finds the ways where if, if something is in excess, it lessens that. If there's not enough of that quality, mindfulness tends to bring that quality forth because we know where the balance needs to be. So the fourth is concentration. Of course, mindfulness supports concentration. That ability of the mind to be steady, either on a moment-to-moment basis when we're doing vipassana, when. Uh, mindfulness is noticing changing objects or on a basis where it keeps steady more on one object when concentration is in the development of deep states of concentration or the jhanas, what we call the jhanas, uh, where it stays steady on say one object or just a few objects we can develop the jhanas through the metta practice the metta practice develops the jhanas to a certain degree Equanimity practice in the development of jhanas develops the jhanas or the meditative absorptions to a deeper or a more powerful degree than metta does. Uh, Equanimity is more powerful than metta in its concentration. Concentration is the antidote to a dispersed mind because concentration gathers the energy. It unifies the energy and it puts it in one place. Even if it's for a moment, in the moment-to-moment awareness of Vipassana or in the steady awareness on one object, it gathers the attention and directs it there, just over and over and over again. You can say that it holds the beam of attention, and so the, the mind becomes even more calm, even more composed than it already was before uh, concentration came into play. So mindfulness, of course, helps develop that uh, because it knows when it needs more steadiness, when it needs more composure. And all of this develops wisdom. Wisdom, the Buddha says, is the crowning virtue of all of these faculties. All of these faculties, when they become strong, brings wisdom more into play. Wisdom is not mindfulness. Wisdom is not concentration. Wisdom is not calm. Wisdom is not faith. Wisdom has its own power. It knows what's going on in the present moment through the lens of seeing uh, the impermanence. Through the, lens of, through the wisdom lens of seeing how it's all so conditional, not self. Through the lens of seeing the unsatisfactoriness of that moment. Wisdom understands all of these um, deep factors, uh, also through knowing the Four Noble Truths. So it said that wisdom drives away the darkness of ignorance. Ignorance means it doesn't see impermanence. The mind doesn't see impermanence, it just sees things as permanent. Maybe not everything, but some things. It, it sees like aversion coming up, and and thinks, This has always been happening. This is happening now, and this will always happen. It tends to see uh, experiences in that way. Ignorance is um, not seeing uh, that things are unsatisfactory. It it. Ignorance thinks that somewhere, somewhere along the line, uh, this body and mind is going to have some complete, enduring satisfaction with either one experience or various experiences coming together. But ignorance, uh, when that is dispelled and wisdom comes about, it sees that there is no enduring permanent satisfaction in any one thing, in any one person, in any set of conditions coming together. And so wisdom begins to see that more and more with every moment, with every condition, with every experience. It doesn't mean that we hate life. It just means that we come more into uh, living in alignment with that truth and not expecting some total satisfaction somewhere. That relaxes the mind immensely. And wisdom also drives away the darkness of ignorance that sees that there's some enduring self somewhere. It be, uh, wisdom begins to see that there are just these various conditions coming together to make a sense of self sense of self is important but when we also see that there is this kind of evanescent experience with every moment that we call a self when we see that moment disappearing whatever we call the self or we see the impermanence of it seeing the unsatisfactoriness of it as well there begins to open the wisdom of seeing the anatta characteristic or the not-self characteristic of every moment or of any set of conditions coming together. So more we'll talk more about that as the retreat goes on. So it said that wisdom is the crowning virtue. It drives away the darkness of ignorance. And all of this coming together helps us to live in alignment with the truth of life instead of living in denial of it, the ignoring of it, or living in the resistance of it. A lot of our resistance in our life makes us tired. This is what is a major cause of tiredness, of sloth and torpor. We're resisting the truth of how things are. So these are the various um, individual functions and uh, of these different faculties, of the five faculties, and then to consider them as pairs. How, how would that look? How can we see how they make a balance with each other? So the pairs of faith and wisdom and how that can make a balance. And as Steve said the other night, we, we need to keep an eye on these. You know, how are they in balance with each other? And some with, with a wisdom mind, with that kind of uh, wise consideration, we can take a look at this once in a while in ourselves. Not to get off on the track of too much thinking about it, but um, just in retreat, taking a short assessment of how this is in our own spiritual lives. Faith and wisdom are the Capacities for devotion and comprehension. Comprehending uh, what wisdom really means in this particular path. To consider energy and concentration, we see the balance of active exertion and calm recollection. So we need both of these to be active in our practice. Um, in the mind and physically active as well in our practice. We need also to unify and collect the mind, calm it down, and have this come into balance with energy. Some of you may have felt in this retreat or other times, or not even in a retreat, where there was, you could sit there or you could do your walking practice and there would be a balance of feeling calmness in the mind, concentration in the mind, and a body that was sufficiently energized to um, be clear, to be really, really mindful. So all of the above, the, the balance of faith and wisdom, the balance of energy and concentration, make mindfulness very, very powerful. And that's going back to what Sedao Pandita said, is that then it makes little work for mindfulness. When these are in balance, faith and wisdom, energy and concentration, there comes a point in our practice that is called, and it's, it's quite recognizable by a teacher, by what yogis say, or by ourselves as yogis, Is there comes a point that's called effortless effort or effortless mindfulness, when uh, there's no need to push, there's no need to pull back and calm the mind. No, No matter where you go, mindfulness follows you around. It's just taking a step, sitting down, eating, going to the bathroom, laying down in bed. Mindfulness is there with the practice just in an effortless way. And so that's why it's really important to see the balance in all of these. It's so essential, not just to our meditative journey, of course, but to our practice at home as we take the practice into our lives. Being aware of where there is a balance is a great boon to us. Being aware where there isn't uh, a balance, where there's some imbalance, It really helps us just making a an honest, taking an honest look at what's going on in uh, in our practice. There's an analogy the Buddha gave for the qualities of faith and wisdom, a little story. He compared faith to a blind giant who meets up with a small sharp-eyed cripple called wisdom. And the giant which is faith, says to the sharp-eyed cripple, who is Wisdom, I'm strong and can go fast, but I can't see where I'm going. You're small and weak, but have sharp eyes. If you ride on my shoulders, then together we go far. So pairing up the two, seeing where um, you need to do that in your practice. So, I'd like to fill out faith a little bit more. Uh, it's one of my favorite subjects. Um, they say that you know there's different personality types in the um, kind of Buddhist psychology, and the there's the greedy type, and there's the aversive type, and there's a the deluded type. And the uh, greedy type is seeking out, seeking out pleasant. Uh, experiences, actually seeking out pleasant feeling within those experiences all the time, all the time. And I know, well, that's me, you know, that's what I normally do. We can go into a restaurant, for example, and I will seek out where I feel is most pleasant. Where with oh, next to the window we can see pleasant sights, um, we can, you know, Maybe it's next to the kitchen. We can smell pleasant things, and where the food comes out, I can take a peek, you know, that kind of thing. Steve will tend to see um, in a good way. I don't mean to be this in a bad way, but he'll tend to see where it's a not, pla- not a good place to sit. You know, it's too windy over there. Or um, maybe it's too busy there. You know, this uh, kind of averse of nature is very sharp-minded. Um, So, uh, seeking out is a quality of uh, the greedy type, but also it's a quality which the greedy type really, when is more transformed, we see the faith nature, because faith seeks out what is good. Faith seeks out hearing the truth, hearing the Dharma. Faith seeks out good friends. Faith seeks out liberation. And so this seeking out turns to what leads to liberation. Faith seeks out what is helpful for one's onward going on the path. It's a quality of the heart. You know, we, we, It's not something you think out. It's something you a lot feel out in your life, in your, in your experiences. A lot of it is connected with devotion and love. There's a lot of happiness in giving of oneself, in uh, feeling the lessening of pride in your life. In the Pali uh, language, the, the word for faith is sadha, s-a-d-d-h-a, sadha. And that uh, literally means to place one's heart upon. To place one's heart upon. So it's to place one's heart upon the path, the way, the way that's worthy of your efforts. Because your heart, you sort of lead into your life by your heart. You know the way. We can intuit the way that we can trust. We intuit that with our hearts. Or at least we feel we can open to what's beyond a cynical nature of um, kind of figuring things out, and sometimes with more cynicism than intelligence. In the Buddha's um, uh, teaching and faith, uh, this faith means faith in the fact that actually the Buddha, this human being long ago almost 2,600 years ago, became uh, enlightened, understood deeply the nature of reality and lived in alignment with that reality, became free from suffering, all kinds of suffering. So because we might have some faith in that, even if it's just a little faith, it begins to open us to the core teaching of the Four Noble Truths. That there is the fact of suffering, that we can know what is the cause of suffering through our own experience. And through our own experience, we can know what is the end of suffering. We can know that end. And through our own practice, we can walk the path to the end of suffering, which is the, four, the Eightfold Noble Path. So we begin with faith to have um, some understanding of that this is possible for us as human beings. We have faith in our ability to see for ourselves, and this is an important part of faith. They say faith is, can be about a few things, faith in our ability, faith in our uh, teachers to know the way, faith in the teachings. And sometimes we might have some doubts about the teachers. We might have some doubts about the teachings. We might have some doubts about our ability to do it. Mostly for most people that I've come across and in myself, sometimes I have little faith when when the practice gets really hard in my own ability to do it. But I still maintain a lot of faith in the teachings and in the teachers that I've chosen. So we see for ourselves where our faith is weak and where there's doubt. And then we try to find a way to buoy our faith, to buoy our trust. But sometimes we can have a blind faith, a devotion where it's not Uh, trustworthy, really. We usually find that out later, and we know that in retrospect. It's called, blind faith is sometimes a misplaced trust. We can follow uh, a teaching or a teacher just because we hear something wonderful from that teacher or that uh, teaching, and we can just agree with it. And that's about all we can do. We can have devotion to what is said, to what, is re- what we read, to what we hear. And it's easy to just agree, but not do the practice. True faith is when the teacher can inspire you to do the practice for yourself, and actually has a path of practice, and to do it so that we understand it for ourselves. Not to follow like sheep or just to uh, praise the ones who know or who we think have been enlightened or who understand more deeply. So understanding that blind faith is sometimes part of the journey. But sometimes it's actually an essential part of the journey. We don't really know when we begin, but we have to try it out for ourselves, as the Buddha said to a group of people called the Kalamas in the Kalama Sutta. Basically, the Buddha said, when you know for yourself, because you've tried it out for yourself, that this is a path that leads to the end of suffering, that it doesn't create more suffering, that in this path there can be the knowing of what leads to suffering and the ability to relinquish it. And the knowing what leads to the end of suffering and to what leads to harmony and the ability to nourish that and to sustain that. So then sometimes through blind faith we come to what is called bright faith and um, might, might have to be part of the journey but that's, that's how it goes. Bright faith is when we can overcome some doubt. It may not be the deep-rooted doubt, but it could be a big enough doubt that we like to take steps of our own on the journey. We may be looking at some light or some person outside of ourselves and doing, uh, putting a lot of energy into praising them. And to saying, oh, this person is so great, I, just these days we hear a lot about that, this person, that person. is, But there's not, um, sometimes I don't see enough turning to one's own ability and saying, I can do that too. I can, I can understand that as well as that person. It's mostly a lot about that other person. So this is a sad thing for me to see on the journey. Bright faith is we may be inspired by a teaching or another person, but a lot of our energy is placed around that person or around that teaching, and not so much trying it out for ourselves yet. But nevertheless, it's important when uh, uh, something inspires us in that way um a friend uh, of mine a couple of friends of mine on the journey said that what inspired them was um, what brought them to a place of that it's possible to be peaceful that it's possible to come to a place in their hearts of kind of opening is opera and it's it's that was their bright faith in a way I saw that as their bright faith but It brought them to the Dharma to try it out. So it inspires us, and it gives us a sense of, okay, maybe I can try for myself. And we do start to try for ourselves. And then we get to the place where we might say this is mature, bright faith, where we begin to see for ourselves that whatever that deep place in that opens our heart, that makes us understand more about truth, the truth of life, the true nature of life, we begin to have experiences in our own life, in our own minds, on our own path about that. And more specifically, on this path of practice that Steve and I have taken, we see that it comes true for people, it is coming more and more true for people who begin to see that, oh, I have seen that in my practice, that this is the body. This is the sensations in the body and the knowing of it. And those two things are different from one another. It's not kind of all glommed together. This is the object of practice of uh, either one of the four foundations of mindfulness, which includes sensations in the body. It could be a feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It could be a moment of thinking. And all of a sudden, we will see that this is the experience, the the object, and this is the knowing of it. And those two things are very distinct from one another. So this begins to be more mature, bright faith. And some of you, in some ways or another, have expressed that. We begin to also see the cause and effect relationship of one thing to another. Um, And the understanding begins to open, understanding the laws of cause and effect and of karma, and maybe not knowing the fullness of that understanding, but there is an opening in the uh, spiritual intellect of understanding that. After mature, bright faith comes verified faith when it's more deeply investigated. And the experiential knowledge of it happens over and over and over, oftentimes, so that we can no longer deny uh, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path. And this isn't because it's the Buddha's teaching, but these are universal understandings. So verified faith comes with more and more experiential investigation of the path of practice. This actually uh, begins to lead to what is called embodied wisdom, where all of these come into balance. Faith and wisdom, um, concentration and energy are already in balance, and that uh, mindfulness is incredibly and uh, easefully, very, very easy, that comes to the moment-to-moment experience. So I might add here that uh, the other side of faith, of course, is wisdom. Wisdom as book knowledge is good, intellectual knowledge is good, but it's not connected with the heart. And when it's balanced with this faith of some devotion to understanding the path. It's not devotion to a person. It's devotion to a path of practice. When we understand that that it comes from our heart then there's more balance between that heart and that heady wisdom. A lot of wisdom, too much wisdom, can lead to thinking about things too much without actually doing the practice. It's too much thinking and it's kind of like we feel like we're a dog chasing our tail instead of actually um, doing the practice ourselves we become intoxicated with our knowledge and quite identified with what we know um, sometimes um, when i first started the practice manindra would tell me don't read anything for 10 years just practice and a kind of he kind of knew that that would be my natural path anyway because I'm more of a faith type and um, and I had too many kids anyway to, to read a lot <laughs> so uh, he said just practice practice in your daily life go to retreats when you can to kind of get that deepening happening so um, then afterwards, then read. And it really worked for me. It may not work for everybody because some people actually need to understand um, intellectually first. But when I started reading the teachings of the Buddha, and it didn't even have to have Buddha or Dharma in it, but when I started reading and understanding, I could hook up those understandings with experiences. And I could say, oh, yes, I understand that from this experience. And there was a lot more confidence because it was verifiable. So that was, that's verified faith. And so this uh, book knowledge is reading this hearing of the Dharma. Whenever I heard a Dharma talk, it would brighten the mind and say, oh, yes, that's, uh, that's true, that's true. So if we just read books uh, without a taste of the the experience ourselves, it's not as fulfilling. You know, just thinking about it is not as fulfilling. When I went to my first month-long retreat, I, bought the, I brought the book, The Experience of Insight, A Natural Unfolding, the book by first book by Joseph Goldstein. And I was reading it, you know, during the retreat. And when the teacher found out, Manindra was there, but one of the uh, helpers and the teachers, and along with Manindra's support, and went after he heard the comment, the, the person said to me, you're reading about this experience of insight instead of just experiencing it. You know, the, the book is all about uh, 30 day Dharma talks of the 30 days of a month-long retreat, and I was in the retreat. <laughs> And, you know, the teacher was actually saying to me, you know, that's a little bit ridiculous. (laughs) You know, put that book away and just follow the instructions and know what's going on experientially. That's a lot more um, satisfying. And it, it may be, you know, that we have to kind of let some bits of the puzzle come together and then we see more clearly, but it's really worth it to do it that way. Um, tasting the mango is really different from someone trying to describe how it tastes. Isn't that true? Um, one time we were talking to Steve's I remember this, we were talking to Steve's Abhidhamma teacher he's a monk in, uh, I don't know if he's still in Australia, but in that time we called him in Australia and we were we were asking him questions about Nibbana and um, um, So he was answering all of our questions about Nibbana or Nirvana, the unconditioned. And finally he said, sugar is sweet, but it's no sense talking about it. Go and taste it, he said to us. So So a wisdom um, of logical understanding is good, but experiential wisdom is far better. And all of these uh, faculties lead to that, and the balancing of them lead to that experiential wisdom. They need to be in balance with each other. Too much faith can lead to blind devotion. Devotion feels good, but it's not with any um, experiential understanding. Too much wisdom and no faith in the practice, can we can be intoxicated identified with what we know. So energy. We need mental energy. We need physical energy. Steve spoke uh, the other night about the energy that we need. I think he filled that out quite a bit. And it was really important, I know, to a lot of you to understand that it's just this moment to moment energy. It's not this big oomph that we have to take in our practice it's just moment to moment knowing what is happening when we when we hear that sound that's easy to be aware of can we bring that easiness of mindfulness to every moment this is a kind of energy that we need we need it consistently persistently continuously that's why continuity in practice is so important So physical energy, uh, of course, feeds that. We know when to take a brisk walk. We know maybe when to slow down that walk. So knowing what we need in in that area. Sometimes um, I've seen this energy in, in myself and in others, so I want to talk about it a little bit because Steve already talked about the four great efforts the other night when he talked about effort or energy. This is a kind of energy that we feel is determination. And whether you agree that you have it or not, all of you have it by virtue of the fact that you're here, The the determination to know the truth, the determination to discover for yourselves some deep understanding or deep-seated aspiration to be free, maybe to be free from worry, or to be free from something that's bothering you in your life, or to be totally free of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is called um, samvega, or spiritual urgency, and we all have it to various degrees. The Buddha called this some vega spiritual urgency. He described this as, you know, during the time he lived, men wore turbans, and he described this as uh, your turban being on fire, and you you just really have to get that fire of greed, hatred, and delusion. You have to put that out. Sometimes we hear it as having our hair on fire, you know, with um, understanding that we need to put the fires of ignorance out. So this um, arises for every one of us in different ways. We, we may see the suffering in, our, in the world. We may see the suffering in ourselves. And we really want to do something about it. We really want to understand deeply. Maybe we want to help others. We want to help ourselves uh, within helping others. And this creates for us this spiritual urgency to understand what the truth of life really is and to lead into that life from that place. So this is about energy and that particular energy, that spiritual urgency. We have to be careful that that spiritual urgency doesn't cause striving, doesn't cause this over-efforting. And this is kind of like the um, oh, the illness, the sickness of our Western society. There's a lot of striving. There's too much, uh, so that we bring it into our spiritual practice, and we try too hard. Um, even if it's just trying too hard to stay awake, you know, and not just being mindful of having sloth and torpor, but we over-effort so much that we become more and more tired. So watching out for this over-efforting, it's a cause of either more sloth and torpor or restlessness in our practice. It has to be tamed, or it has to be balanced by more calm, more concentration. And in Vipassana practice, this is the moment-to-moment concentration. Concentration on changing objects. So we can get interested in that. You know, interest is a kind of energy. Maybe we can get interested in the experiences, the objects of meditation that are being known to us moment to moment. The Buddha talks about um, balance in terms of um, this energy. And this is a famous um, counseling that the Buddha gave to a discouraged monk called Sona. And Sona is a, a lute player, you know, and he's he was um, learning how to tune his lute so that he would have beautiful music. It's interesting that the word sonar means, um, you know, to to sound. Uh, in Spanish, or it comes from the Latin, too. So the Buddha counsels a discouraged monk, Sona, to balance or tune his spiritual faculties as one would a musical instrument. What do you think, he says to Sona, when the strings of your lute were neither too taut nor too loose, but tuned to be right on pitch Was your lute in tune and playable? And Sona said, yes, Lord. In the same way, Sona, the Buddha said to him, over aroused persistence leads to restlessness. Slack persistence leads to laziness. Thus you should determine the right pitch for your persistence. Attune the pitch of the five faculties to that, and there pick up your theme. So how is it for us in that balance of concentration and energy? Know what it is for you. One time, um, there was so much concentration and so much kind of. Um, in this way, it can happen too. It does. It's not laziness, but there was like so much concentration and so much calmness in the mind, like Steve uh, was talking about the other night with his practice, I was just sitting for a long, long time. And I just didn't have, didn't feel like getting up. And my practice wasn't really onward leading, even though the body in, could sit for long hours, and the mind could just be there with it. When I went to report this to Sayadaw Upandita that there was uh, sitting for long periods of time he said to me, walk one hour, sit one hour. He wasn't impressed at all by how long I was sitting. He just saw that there was some imbalance there. Walk one hour, sit one hour. So watch, watching for that in our practice. So all of these things need a balance, this faith and wisdom, energy and concentration when the faculties these faculties become powers they're also known as the five spiritual powers when they're very mature in the beginning they're faculties and in their maturity they're called the five spiritual powers when these faculties become powers they result they can result in the meditative absorptions When wisdom becomes a power, it means insight into the three characteristics of impermanence, or anicca, unsatisfactoriness, or dukkha, and corelessness, anatta. When faith turns into power, then it also manifests as a four, it can manifest as a four immeasurable emotions, the Brahmaviharas, loving kindness, or metta, compassion or karuna, uh, mudita or sympathetic joy, and upeka or equanimity. One finds oneself when all of these are in balance, more harmonious, and more satisfied, feeling more just fulfilled and settled in one's practice. There are less difficulties within us, so there's more energy to help others to give to others. We develop these five faculties all during our meditative practice and even during our life. Just the practicalities of seeing we're spinning around too much, we're too busy, need more time for sitting at home. Or maybe there's too much sitting. And there's I have a girlfriend uh, who does a lot of sitting at home. I mean, she'll sit for two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening, and she had children, and her house was a complete mess, you know. So, and wasn't doing well with her husband. This was a long time ago. Um, she's it's better now, but um, she needed to get up from her seat and start, you know, doing the energy to put her house in order a little more. And so, but also because of her sitting, she really. Um, had made deep progress on the path. So developing these five faculties should be a primary um, aspiration in our lives to continually look these over as we go along for balance. Balancing them needs to be seen as connecting the heart with the mind. Really they're both one thing but when we can come from a place of devotion to our path of practice and understanding it also. This is the end result of our path. So let's sit for a moment.